0: Welcome to Bibliophiles, a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Here on the show, we attempt to find universal ideas and stories all around us, whether old or new, in every medium and in any genre. We hope to participate in a great conversation alongside our favorite authors and artists across the ages about the stuff of life, man's frailty and glory, his muck and his marvel, his faith and his doubt. In this season, the Center for Lit crew goes to the movies, We're looking at what happens when our favorite books are adapted for the big screen, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Over the course of 10 episodes, we'll be discussing the similarities and differences between the two mediums and what distinguishes a successful adaptation from a real stinker. So grab some popcorn and enjoy the show. Well, hello and welcome, welcome, welcome back to another episode of Bibliophile. It's a three welcome day, a three welcome day. I like it. Uh, rapid Fire round, one from each of you. Since we have, over the course of this whole season of talking about movies, not spent a lot of time on animated films, what is your favorite animated movie? Missy. The Incredibles. Megan. I wasn't ready. Well, <laughs> that's, that's part of Rapid Fire. That's what Rapid Fire is all about.
1: I'm not about Rapid Fire. Anyone who knows me knows I'm very methodical. I take a long time. Stop okay. by in time. Peter Pan. <laughs>
2: Dad, either Prince of Egypt or Robin Hood with the foxes.
1: Oh, both oh, oh, those, those are choices. great options. Erase my
2: okay.
0: choice, Emily.
2: The Emperor's New Groove. Mm.
0: The Emperor's New Groove. Yeah, Kuzco. Kuzco's poison. Out. <laughs> Kuzco's totally my favorite. Out. My favorite animated movie is The Wind in the Willows, circa 1995. I think it's the 1995 the the watercolor the version. The Redgrave. Beautiful,
3: beautiful. Vanessa music. Redgrave. Right. Vanessa. Oh, Redgrave.
0: Vanessa Redgrave. Reading the introduction. I think it's a shame. Uh, In retrospect, I I mean, I'm the guy who wrote the plan for this season, so it's kind of on me. But it's a shame that we haven't taken up animated movies, I think. Uh, Not to spend the whole episode talking about it now, but what a fabulous art form, and what a deep and wide one in recent years. I agree. That would be fun. At the end of a day like that, we would say, ooda-lolly.
2: Ooda-lolly. I
1: think it's the same conversation as picture books versus novels.
0: Yeah. Whoa. Well, welcome back, you guys. It's good to see your faces, as per the usual. Today we have a great topic on the table in front of us, which is the recent film adaptation of the Middle English poem Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Mm. And Emily is on the hot seat, although I think all of us have seen the film, but this was Emily's idea for an episode, and she has a couple of interesting things to say about it. By way of preface, what I'll say is that the topic for our episode is the question of responsive art and not to steal the punch from Emily's comments, but I think she sees the movie through this particular vein and it's going to be a great, a great discussion. So Emily, what is your, what's your takeaway? How would you open the discussion on this particular film?
4: Well, I am not necessarily settled entirely in my opinion, so <laughs> it will be that fun makes for the to best toss it around in conversation, but I guess my opening salvo will just be, only a studio as weird as A24 could have <laughs> taken up adapting a Middle English
0: poem. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Emily, what else have they done? Give us a quick pricey.
4: I can't give you titles, but like they're they're starting to become really prolific. Every time I go to the theater, there's a new trailer from A24, and the one that will forever be. <laughs> Stuck it's true: in my scarred little memory is a trailer for a film about a family a scandinavian family it's called lamb is that what it yes, was called well it. it appears that in the movie oh and by the way in the background is a beach boys very upbeat beach boys soundtrack the family the little the little husband and wife discover that their child or no, they lamb. They have a lamb farm, right? Mm-hmm. And and one of the there's lambs, a there's a lambing, the and it's half lamb, half human. <gasps> what? And it's a, it has little child legs, yeah, and lamb head, and it appears as though it's supposed to be
1: cute. I that don't
4: they, know. it's like a weird mixture of horror. World? Well, it, okay, so like Sir Gammon, right? It's like horror,
1: absurdist,
4: yeah, thinky horror. And like,
1: yeah, it seems like
3: that we saw. Well,
4: together. that is the director. So, David Lowry is the guy who directed Zergowan so oh. in the Green Knight. Oh, okay. And hmm. he also directed this film I watched with mom called Ghost. I think it was just you and I.
1: No, I was there. I watched it. You were was there? also there. Yes, it was very strange. The guy walks around with a sheet over his head because he's dead.
3: But that's how they portrayed it is the guy walking around with a sheet over his head. It was he really literally stands
1: in the corner of room silently <laughs> yes. with a sheet over him. You save money on CG that way.
2: Right.
0: Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> good point. It's
2: a little really bit good like, point. you know,
1: in your backyard putting on a movie. Like looking back, I think Ghost
0: is actually a good film. But I think it, it was too. strange. Well, it just sounds like it, Sir in and the Green Knight. Just yes. watching the trailer for Lamb, <laughs> it looked to me like it was a surrealistic personification device to talk about either postpartum depression or some sort of maternal obsession.
4: Yeah. Like it looked like
0: that was the subject of the movie or
4: maybe some kind of like work life imbalance. I don't know. But anyway, but ma- that's a 24 that's <laughs> right. not David Lowry, the director, but a 24 is coming out with a lot of some contemplative weird horror flicks. And
0: they are the ones who did Sir Gowan and the Green Knight. Is that what you would say about Gowan and the Green Knight? The story? I mean, how would you categorize it in terms of genre? We know it's a middle English poem, but just a weird story you're talking about the text now not the yes movie. i'm talking about the text yeah i
4: think that we are going to get a lot of interesting conversation about this episode because i think that is it is one of the most misread poems that i know of mm. and i think that it is great i do love it but i think that on the surface level people lump it in, obviously, with chivalric romance. Right. In fact, in the movie, it says this is the chivalric romance story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and it's Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table, etc., etc. And uh, you kind of want to transfer in a lot of thematic content from that tradition into the poem.
0: Yeah, super tempting.
4: And you should. That is the intention of it. But just because it imports all of that, thematic heft doesn't mean it's saying the same thing as the Shepholic tradition.
0: Right. Which makes sense, actually, given the context of art in general, few works survive that aren't at least a little bit countercultural, right? I mean, whether it's a full scale indictment or just an observation, generally a great work of art looks around at the culture and says, I have questions about this, right?
2: I have never thought about that before. I have never thought about the idea that a work of art that has survived the centuries probably has that power because in some way it was countercultural. And so I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a compelling idea. And so when we look back on a historical work of art, we're looking at a critique of its day and age, maybe as often as not.
3: Are you suggesting that, that maybe that's going on
0: in the choice of genre with this particular author? Maybe. I mean, I, and Emily, I'll let you answer that question, but my impression of, of, of the idea is that, or of, or of what Emily's trying to say, rather, is that the fact that it's set in an era of chivalry in the context of the chivalric code doesn't necessarily mean it is issuing, like a clarion call, the chivalric code as its thematic material.
3: I see. I would and, say that
0: about the poem, certainly.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think right. so too. Right. But it is participating
4: in the Arthurian legend cycle, right?
0: Right, but the question is how?
4: And it is full of, I mean, to kind of go back to the conversation of it being a film adaptation, uh, the poem, the text is full of a lot of magical, supernatural elements and the fantastical, for sure, which definitely issues a challenge for someone who would want to to translate it to film. I mean, no you run the danger of it being, I don't know, uh, too trite, like, um, yeah, like almost a children's story because it's fantastical, or just plain not working as a story because it's too strange.
0: Yeah. And, and you can, I mean, it's easy to gloss over some of the weirdness when you're reading the poem. More difficult when he puts it on the screen, right? In the shape of a two and a half mile tall giant. For yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's
3: exactly what I was thinking about when
0: you said that. Just he a draws, little weird. Draws. Draws some of the surrealist elements to the surface, Hmm. I think you
4: could say. Well, and the poem itself leaves a lot of room. There's a, they basically took a story that probably could have been told in half an hour to an hour and extended it. Because there is one section in the middle of the poem where it says Gawain goes out exploring, looking for the chapel and had many adventures along the way.
0: Maybe it would be helpful, Emily, for some of our listeners who may or may not have read a lot of Middle English poetry (laughs) to give them just a quick summary of the plot.
4: Sure. So it takes place in Arthur's court. Arthur is king. and. One of the differences of the film that is true of the text, it's not true of the film, but in the text, Arthur is a young king Mm -hmm. who is making merry at Christmas at his court. And he asks his knights for a feat of strength or a story of some kind. He wants someone to do something amazing.
0: A Christmas game.
4: (laughs) Do something amazing, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. Something amazing, I guess.
1: guess.
0: (laughs) Ah, the Incredibles. It keeps coming back today.
4: So... Right when he asks that a giant green knight walks in the room uh, on horseback and he has in one hand a giant axe and in the other hand a holly branch and he issues a challenge to the court and says, take this branch from me and strike at me and I will return for you blow for blow in a game and he's very clear it's a game. In the Middle English, when he says, take this branch from me, it's unclear whether he's talking about the axe or the holly branch. Um, so there's kind of a choice. The same,
0: the same word is, is, could, eat, could, could mean either. It's ambiguous. Yeah. Sweet. Oh, interesting.
2: Yeah.
4: yeah. So... Arthur is the one who initially wants to accept the challenge, but his knights tell him, no, no, you have too much responsibility. You can't do that. And so Gawain steps up and he decides that he'll be the one to, to um accept the challenge. His and
0: nephew, Arthur's nephew.
4: Yes. Yes. And he strikes off the head of the knight. He just goes for it <laughs> uh, and decides that this is his time. Yeah. But unfortunately the knight picks up his head, not dead, And says, "I'll see you in a year," and goes away. And so a year passes, and Gawain, who has become a hero of the court, equipped with a whole bunch of things, including lots of like religious symbolism. Uh, He's he's Mary is on the inside of his shield and he has the five points which represent the five wounds of christ on him and so he is kind of made into the perfect knight errant and sent off to go find the green chapel and get whatever he had coming to him after the game a year later and on the way after many adventures which we don't know anything about he comes to a castle uh, owned by a lord named Bertalac, and he welcomes him in he's tired from his long journey and he gives him shelter and says you're so close to where the chapel is so come rest with me and then we'll send you on your way
0: have christmas with us yeah right.
4: take so a look stays there and bertillac challenges him to another game and says for the th- next 3 nights I'm going to go hunting, and while I'm gone, you stay here, you rest up and get your strength, but I'm going to hunt. <laughs> and,
0: well, no, he's well, more specific. I'm going to get there. Wait for he it. says,
4: I'm going to hunt, and whatever I get, I will give to you, and whatever you get while you're in the castle, you give to me. Well, it turns out that Bertalac has a really hot wife who <laughs> is also in the <laughs> castle, and she will not let Gawain go. She <laughs> pursues him. Very hotly. Very Um, hot. It's a (laughs) real Joseph and Potiphar situation. Yep. She just basically will not let the issue go. And he resists. He tries to be... He's Basically what happens is he's stuck in a situation where he has to choose between his code of chivalry where... According to the Code of Chivalry, you serve your lady and you do whatever lady she lady asks. So you don't embarrass her. The lady her, is never right. wrong and you never embarrass her. But he's also a, a good Christian knight. And so he's also under the code of of moral conduct. And so he shouldn't be anywhere near Bertalac's wife. So he successfully keeps her away for two nights. But on the third night, he does end up taking a green belt from her He doesn't do anything else with her. She just gives him a gift and says, if you wear this green belt, you will be safe from Mm -hmm. whatever is coming. And it's just too tempting. Yep. He takes it. Right. And of course, according to the rules of the game, he's supposed to give that back to Bertilak. And he doesn't. He keeps it for himself. And that is that. And he's sent on his way to meet the Green Knight. And in the story, in the poem, he does end up meeting the Green Knight, wearing the belt and the Green Giant hacks away at him three times, and the first two times he flinches, and the third time he gets him a little bit, and says, "Well, that's a, a, a blow for blow, one for each strike." He just nicks him; he doesn't, he doesn't take off his head. Enough. Yeah, and he says, "Basically, you you lied to me." It turns out that the Green Knight is actually Bertalac in a in a strange reveal. And he, magic is a foot. <laughs> he says, "You know, according to the rules of the game, each nick or each each blow was for each of the three t- each of the three exchanges at the castle. But you lied to me, and you didn't give me the belt, and so that last nick was for a punishment for that." And Gawain is so embarrassed and so sorry. Uh, And he's mortified at himself and he's invited to continue to spend Christmas with Bertilak and his wife, but refuses in shame and keeps the green belt so that it will be a sign of his shame forever and ever (laughs) and ever to all generations. And he goes back home and tells everyone what happened and says, I'm going to wear this belt forever because everyone needs to know that I am not a true knight and I've completely failed the code. And this will be a sign of my shame. And basically everyone laughs at him and they all decide to wear the green belt themselves to show that they also identify with Gawain. That's a show uh, of solidarity.
1: Right. It's kind of beautiful.
4: Yep. You can either read it as a mockery, but I prefer the reading of it being them saying, you know, None of us are perfect at this chivalry thing and so we're all going to wear it as a sign of our, our brotherhood. And
3: it's interesting that you could kind of you could kind of call it both things at once because they are chiding him in the story, but it's not scornfully. It looks like it's more gentle mockery to try to get him to laugh at himself mm. and well not right. take his failure too seriously because he's human. He
1: certainly doesn't have humility even when he right. comes back wearing his shame.
0: Right. Well, Emily, well done. That was um <laughs> yeah, that, that was, was awesome. It, That's a lot of story to summarize.
4: (laughs) Thank you. I I wondered why you had me do that whole thing.
3: (laughs) It's been a long time since I read that story, and there was an element that I that I wonder if I'm misremembering, and it's about how the Green Knight and Bertilac came to be the same person. He was enchanted, right?
4: (laughs) Why was he not green? Why couldn't we tell? So Morgan le Fay, yes, by Mm -hmm. Morgan le Fay, who is Arthur's sister, but not. As in the film, not his mother. Okay. His mother is something else that is like Morgans or something like that. It sounds like it's very similar. So not the same person. (laughs) So Morgan Le Fay is his aunt and she is an uh, enemy to Arthur and she enchanted the Green Knight and had him come to visit Arthur's court to test, basically as a test to the court. And this is significant in the poem because basically Arthur fails the test because we, we can assume that Gawain learned his impetuosity from his King from
1: Arthur. Right.
4: I see. Interesting.
0: Okay. So the poem puts a lot of stress on this tension that you mentioned, Emily, between the demands of the chivalric code and the demands of Christian morality, right? Being a Christian knight and, there are a handful of re- of ways to read the end of the poem, but none of them really truly erase that tension. The poem seems to say you kind of can't do both of those things. You
2: can either right. be Christian or chivalric. You mean? Yeah.
4: That's well, relaxing. and you're you're gonna fail at both. Essentially, a well, code yeah. of conduct is a great thing, but it you only are lives not. to be broken. You can't live up to right. it. Right. You Isn't are not a code of conduct. The you're truth a person. Of any law.
0: Okay, so let, with that. As a as a preface, let's jump into the details of the film itself, because we are talking about film adaptations here, and just because this is an obscure story, I thought it was good to have a little pricey of the mm-hmm. novel in question, yeah, or poem absolutely. in question. But Emily, what about this this film? And all the rest of you, too. You guys have seen this, right? Well, mm-hmm. you know, and I'll, right, I'm going to myself. jump myself. I
4: have
1: not. Oh.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, Megan, you should totally see it. It's yeah, I'm looking great, forward to it. The fantastic Dev Patel, who is He's great. Marvelous. He's riveting. Oh, yeah. Oh, he is, he's so been wonderful in everything I've seen him in. And he plays the Green Knight. And
0: Gowan. He plays
4: Gowan. I'm sorry, Gowan. <laughs> of course. I was like, yes. wow, he plays a giant? Let's go. Wrong. No.
0: <laughs> wrong. No, Emily, wrong.
4: <laughs> yes. So he's great. Kind of when I... When this movie came out, first of all, my first thought was, wow, they're really going to do that. That's an interesting yeah. choice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then... I was really excited. It looked like they were going to do a good job. And I we didn't see it for a while. And all the chatter online kind of fell into two camps. The secular camp, which said that was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It didn't have a plot and we don't really understand it. <laughs> and yep. then there was the Christian side, which said, how dare you turn Gawain into a dissolute because he is supposed to be a knight. He's supposed to be virtuous. And isn't that what the story is all about? Oh, and Ooh, fun. It turns out that in the film they made a choice to have yes. Gawain be kind of a layabout. He's, he spends his time in a whorehouse. He's drunk all the time and he is not the model of a good Christian knight.
3: In the From movie, the beginning.
4: It seems like in the movie he's characterized as somebody
3: who's not yet quite come of age. Almost like a college frat boy. Who hasn't quite gotten together. I
0: agree. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. Doesn't
2: he? The first time we see him, isn't he late for something, having partied the night before and wakes up with a hangover and and rushes to class? He's
0: late for the encounter. Oh, oh, that's right. He's late for the thing.
2: That's right. That's right. It's
0: Christmas morning and he's late to Mass, late to Arthur's court on Christmas Mm. morning because he's been. (laughs) (laughs)
3: his up. way
0: through the previous evening, <laughs>
3: <Right>. <laughs> well, and in the movie, the the mom is kind of responsible for the enchantment of the night, And it almost looks like I mean, i I understood it as I was watching the film as something that she has contrived in order to draw her son to some sort of maturity,
4: right. Yes. And the king, who I want to talk about in a second, but Arthur kind of doubles down on this principle. And even before the night arrives when he asks for a show, a spectacular show like he does in the poem. He, he's speaking particularly to Gawain, who he has invited to sit by his side. And he says, uh, tell me a story. L- make it a game. I'd love to hear about you. I don't know anything about you. And he says, uh, make this a game so that I can get to know you. Right. So the idea is that whatever Gawain's about to do, this is going to reveal something about his character. And they made the interesting choice in the film of having Arthur not be young and impetuous, but being basically at his deathbed. Yep, He's quite old and it's clear that he's going to die and he doesn't have an heir. And so the question is, Gawain is next of kin. Is he going to make a good king? And the only thing that I can think of in their decision for doing this is that it sets up a nice contrast between the code of chivalry and youth that Arthur in his age kind of represents a staid cultural idea that's passing away and the question is what the next generation is going to do about that mhm that's the only reason i can think of to have him be old like that
2: right hmm. i can I see like that. that
0: yeah and and maybe in that context it tends towards exonerating the culture surrounding Gowan for his attitudes and proclivities
4: well right it's kind of shorthand to us because we are watching it we're not reading the poem it's and it's it's a new age that the story is being told in and it's chivalry maybe isn't as big of a deal <laughs> as it was then and so it tells yeah. us that this is something that was important there's a cultural standard and Gawain is is failing to meet it and that is significant I like that. Politically speaking, at least.
1: So, are we supposed to stand with Gawain then, as the the readers or the viewers, as people who've forgotten the chivalric code? Is that what the movie's trying
4: to do? Well, that's such a good question. I have so many mixed feelings about this because, on the one hand, I Gawain is not supposed to be perfect. That's kind of the point, like we talked about with the poem, and so it highlights the fact that he he needs to prove himself in some way. And we see why he needs to prove himself in some way because he doesn't have a great reputation in the court. And then there's the interesting little relationship he has with his girlfriend at the, at the, at the whorehouse. The whorehouse, right, yeah. yeah. But he has a ste- she's steady. She, he sees her continually. They clearly they have something, she's, right. They have a, a stable relationship. <laughs> and on his way, when, after he's already chopped off the head of the night and he's on his way a year later to, to go fulfill his oath. She says to him, why do you have to go and be great? Why do you have to fulfill this oath? And he basically says, honor, right? I have to, I have to be honorable, which is very true to the poem. And she says, well, why do you have to be great when you could just be good? Hmm. And so there's a question of what goodness is. And I'm not, even though I really like this film and I think it does a really good job of bringing to the surface a lot of the important themes of the story, I question what it says about goodness, actually.
3: Wait, can I jump in for a second and ask you to define what you think they mean by that, the the difference between greatness and goodness? Because uh, what, what I... Do you see those as like a, a good, better, best type thing, like a superlative form of goodness is being great? Or do you read... To be great is to be famous,
2: and to be good is to be moral. And to be good is to be moral. I, I lean the sec, the to the latter mm-hmm. of those. It sounded from like it, from your interpretation, myself. yeah. She's not yep. saying why be a three when you could be a two. She's mm-hmm. saying why be famous when you could be yes
0: upstanding. Okay, good, Exactly. Right. Yeah, I think that's really true. So to, to to let's back out a little bit. And Emily, I love where you took that with the the question of okay, what are they talking about when they say goodness here? But let's talk about the ways that it's that it's a good or or bad film adaptation. Um, You talked about or we titled the episode Responsive Art. And this is kind of a new category that we haven't gone over yet. Right. We've talked about some really good film adaptations. We've talked about some poor ones. We're going to talk about an even poorer one in a minute in a future episode. But what is it about this? Where does this one lie? It seems like it's between those things. It's not a straight ahead retelling. I mean, already the, the surface level differences, Arthur being an old king, Gowan being a dissolute instead of an already famous, uh, a knight that's already famous for his purity. Even those changes make it not a straight ahead retelling of the story. So is something about it similar to the spirit of the poem? Yes,
4: I've been going around and around in my head about this. And what I've come to at the moment is I think that it understands the poem pretty well. But instead of telling us that Christianity is the answer. And I laugh at this because people misread this poem all the time and miss the fact that this is a story about repentance and community and, and sin, but it does kind of come down firmly on that as the answer in the poem but in the movie i think they ask a question and say is is there an answer to Gawain's problem and they leave us hanging right they don't mm-hmm. show us the ending they end the film with uh Gawain in front of the green knight at the green chapel and he actually chooses to take off the green belt yep which on the one hand seems to me like it it flirts with going back in the direction of the misreading that he he has chosen to be the right
0: choice. And therefore
4: when the green knight says, well done, he's saying well done for being a good and virtuous knight. And so everyone who's concerned about Gawain and his, and his uh, virtue, well, he actually is. Read the the movie better.
0: All y'all misreaders got exactly (laughs) what you wanted. Well,
4: I don't know. It's difficult, but um, maybe it's repentance instead. Well, that's true on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that they show, by all the strange directions that the movie goes in the other in the other parts of it, I think that they tell the Gawain story over and over again through echoes of it in other ways. Yeah. So that yeah. by the time we get to the end, it's put as a question. In particular, <clears throat> there's a scene, Gawain's just at the beginning of his journey. He's given the green belt. At the beginning of the story in this one, which didn't happen in the poem, his mother gives it to him and tells him that it will protect his head. She basically just comes out and says it. And he wears it and he's beset by robbers on the way and they steal it from him.
0: Along with the axe.
4: Along with the axe. And so... He, and, and they lead him out into the middle of the forest. this by the way is not in the poem this is all this is all the director's creation
0: but'll I'll break in before you narrate the scene. This is evidence to me from an artistic standpoint that he does understand the poem. I think so yeah. because and, this is one of the most stunning visual treats of the whole film
4: Well and it's it's essentially it's an inversion of the Gowan story because um, the kid, the robber, uh, when Gawain says, where am I? He says, you're in the green chapel. This is it. And he smashes the shield that has the portrait of Mary and Christ. And they go away. And Gawain is left there lying uh, without the green belt. It's taken Tied away up. from him. Uh, he's found out, right, for having it, essentially. Kind of like he is in the poem. And he lays there. And there's a shot that pans around. And when it comes back to him, he's dead. He, he's, he's been left uh, we see a vision of what would happen if he was just abandoned. He's a skeleton, there. right? He's a skeleton. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah it's, it's super slow panning in a circle around the forest, and seasons change, and time passes, and when you finally get back to him, he's a he's a moldering corpse.
4: And and then that we he changes it, and we see that this has just been like an imagining. He is alive, and he does find a way to escape. But that to me is one of the answers, right? Later, Gawain is going to. To be afraid to face the Green Knight, and he says, "Is this all there is?" <laughs> and the Green Knight says, "What else should there be?" So there's this—he faces death for the sake of honor and virtue, and there's a chance that that's that's it—that's the end—and that the Green Chapel really is just a place of death.
0: And there's two versions of the ending, right? And this is this is another part that's really that's really controversial. Instead of having the the scene in the chapel where Bertilac. Gives him a nick instead of cutting off his head and sends him home. Instead of having that whole last scene with Arthur and his court and the girdle being accepted as a symbol of brotherhood and all of that, the filmmaker instead gives us a version of the story where Gowan runs away, where he's a coward. And he goes back to Arthur's kingdom and takes Arthur's throne and... You see a fast forward of the rest of his life, wherein he is the monarch and he puts away his prostitute bride to be and takes after a she bears his advantageous, child. yeah. After she bears his child, puts away his family, takes an advantageous marriage from another culture, turns his kingdom into an empire. The empire eventually crumbles and falls, and he dies an old man with nothing.
3: It's basically no it looked like an outworking of the consequences of him making the wrong choice.
0: Yeah. Very moralistic reading there. And that's right. Exactly. If you are a coward, if you don't devote yourself to honor, this is the life you will have.
4: Well, and in the, in the dream vision of his future life, when he is circled, his kingdom is under attack, right? He's become king. His kingdom is under attack and he's at the end of his robe. And so he takes off the green belt. He's been wearing it his whole right. life as a safety belt, essentially. And he does take it off, and his head falls off.
0: Immediately. So
4: the idea is he died, or he'd already died yeah. at the point by keep, that he, by
0: uh, running away. By right. rejecting his right. honor, right? By cheating. I cheated as, yeah. as good as, as dead. The whole thing was living death. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So then he, so we get, we, we zoom back to the present from that foreshadowing, and he takes the takes the girdle off and says, okay, 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 I'm ready. And then we get this ambiguous ending.
4: Okay, but then so the other weird story from his travels, and and I don't even know if we're gonna touch on those strange giants, but there I, will <laughs> I really they're would. Strange, Trust me, I want to understand giants. the giants. he <laughs> have strange ideas, naked Strange, strange yes. giant naked. Women. All
1: right. Well, this is so weird. I gotta see it.
4: <laughs> you you do. Sounds like um.
1: So absurdism. another
4: story. He he's in the woods, and he comes upon the episode is called like. He, he encounters St. Winifred, and St. Winifred is a Welsh saint who was... Who uh, has a
1: well of some sort. I've read about it in poetry.
4: Yeah, her story, which we don't get in the movie, but the background is that she had a suitor. Uh, her father kind of arranged a marriage for her, but while she was being courted, she decided she wanted to be a nun, and so the suitor came in and cut off her head in his fury over the fact that she was going to reject him. So there's head imagery again, and kind of a, um, in a martyrdom sense. And so in the movie, Gawain comes upon a place that is apparently Saint Winifred's house, and he he sleeps because he hasn't had a soft bed to sleep in. And she wakes him up
0: as, as a spirit, uh,
4: as a spirit, and says, "I have a job for you. Will you dive to the bottom of this lake and get my head? I need my head.
1: <laughs> it's like so you Very do. weird." <laughs>
0: The scene itself, you guys twenty four you people as a, cinephile, <laughs> as a cinephile, it is a spectacular scene. i mean the the visuals the whole movie is beautiful visually is. speaking, stylistically a feat, but this scene where he dives down into the water. it feels like a spiritual meditation on guilt yeah and and the way in which he, as a stand in for the code of chivalry for the culture of knighthood, is bearing the guilt of his. Of his sires, right? And she, uh, one of the lines that hangs over the scene is, a knight should not do this thing, right? A knight shouldn't sleep oh, yeah. in a woman's bed.
4: It was a knight that cut off her head right. in the
0: film. And so he is, as, as, a, as a Christian knight, he's now trying to, to expunge the evil of knighthood, kind of once and for all. So a couple of things. And <laughs> Just, I'm sorry I'm sorry. Baptism imagery, anything? I, right? was I mean say, also death we're and diving resurrection. down into the bottom yeah. of a well. I mean it's Beowulf. It's pulling on Beowulf, diving right, down yeah. to do battle with the yep. monster. I mean, there's so there's so many literary allusions that I have to believe this director knows what he's doing. He's conversant in the tradition. But okay, what is Emily, he sorry, saying with it? Well, go, Emily. Well, Let's hear yeah,
4: it. Yeah, go ahead, Emily. So in that scene, Winifred he says, If I do this thing for you, what will you do for me? And she says, why would you ask me that? Why would you ever ask me that? And then he does it. And so this seeds the idea of um, of exchange and deserving and tit for tat, which is at the heart of the Gowan poem. And he's learned that I mean, he's in, he encounters situations over the course of the film where he is invited to do something and he kind of his first response is to think of himself and right. what he would get in return. Until the end of the film, when he stands before the Green Knight and he takes off the belt and all the Green Knight does is smiles at him and tells him, good job. And he says, off with your head. And he draws a line across his throat. And across the his Galman. own throat. Bertalak does. No, no, no. Across Gawain's throat. He, he uses his finger to draw a line on Gawain's throat okay. off with your head, he says,
0: misremembered and then that. the
4: film is over. And so all of the stuff about coming back home to Arthur's court and all that, all that's gone. But, and, and it's also kind of ambiguous whether that's what's going to happen next. Like, it was that it? Is that good enough? Is the knight satisfied? He kind of smiles. maybe maybe this is good, or maybe maybe he means like, okay, now off with your head.
3: or was um, it just the end of
4: the game and what he was saying? he was implying that tell the truth. he was a head
3: case, right? And now he's not anymore.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what i what I see is that we as the audience aren't given the tit for tat, right? the We don't see what he's going to get out of doing the right thing. It's just over. And so there's a sense in which deserving, like we're invited to think of deserving as not part of the equation.
0: Hmm. Interesting. That he's given grace
4: instead of justice in some way.
0: Well, we don't know what he's given. That's what she's trying to say. Hmm. Yeah. It's
2: not that he's given something else. It's It's that he's not getting a tit for tat. Right? It's been eliminated.
4: Well, it's not retributive, at least. Yeah. In either in either case, if the knight decides to strike off his head, he did the right thing, right? He took off the belt. He should be saved, and that would not be getting what he deserves. If he doesn't get his head struck off, well, he he didn't do the right thing, right? Right? He he struck in off no the way, knight's then head. Is he's
1: he getting what he deserves
4: by the terms of the game. He's supposed to get exactly what he gave to the knight, which is striking off his head, and so. It, true to the poem, he does not get what he deserves. He gets grace from the Green Knight. And so I think that the film meditates on the question of why we do things and if we should do things for what we get out of them
0: Interesting. Or not. That's, a, that's a That's a really nuanced reading. Yeah, I, like I love it. that. It makes me want to watch the film again. My impression of that final scene was slightly different, which is that something is coming. We don't get to know what it is. It isn't Mm -hmm. that the finger drawn across the neck is what he gets. It's that you don't get to know what he gets.
4: Well, and that's why I wanted to pay attention to that scene where he said, where the robber says, this is the green chapel, right? Mm -hmm. This is a death. That's the end. That's one of the options on the table. And I think, that's the option our culture understands at the moment. And I don't yeah. know that our culture would understand what the Green Knight actually does offer.
0: Yeah, I think you might be right about that. And that's the, that's the extent to which this is in conversation with the original poem. It's not a perfect film adaptation because we've already talked about that being standing alongside the author and delivering the author's point. I don't think that's what he's doing. But I do think he's saying, I see you. What about this? And it and it holds up, right? It stands as its own work of art from my perspective. What do you guys think of that?
2: Well, I don't know because it sounds like given Emily's tour of the movie that we've just had, that the, the film is saying something along the lines of you guys have misread the poem that really, I mean, assuming that the general reading, the moralistic reading, be sure and tell the truth and be a knight of honor and um, give the belt back and all will be well. That's not really what the poem is all about. The poem is about not getting what you deserve. It's about some sort of of grace.
0: Yeah. And agreed. it sounds
2: like in Emily's interpretation is that that is what the poem or that's what the film is, is saying. So in other words, the film is offering a, a better reading of the poem than maybe its audience uh, has come to it with.
4: Well, on the other side of that, I mean, on the one hand, just not getting what you deserve could be because there's a gracious God. On the other hand, it could be because the universe is meaningless. Right. And so when Bertilak's wife, who is played by the same actress who plays his little girlfriend, tells him... He, she asks, "Why? Why is the night green? Right? That's the first thing that an English teacher does when they teach this poem. Yeah. <laughs> what is the significance of the night being green?" And she makes Gawain answer that question, and and she instead ends up giving a long monologue on it. And she she is very naturalistic in her in her description of what the greenness is. And she says, uh, "It creeps back." It's what's left when red is gone. Men love red, right? It's the color of blood. It's the color of lust. But when red is gone, green creeps back in. It's the color of life. That's the result of lust. She says, grass will fill in your footprints when you're gone. All you hold dear will succumb to it, your skin, your bones, and your virtue. So when everything is gone, green will still be there. And it's two-sided. On the one hand, that could be very hopeless. But it's still green, right it represents life. and so the Christian reading of that is that death like it's you have to it up in
3: life maybe
0: right right mm. so Wow I definitely wow I gotta go watch this again you guys No I, I want to see that this. makes me way more excited to watch it again because I definitely took the nihilistic reading away.
2: So, from did, first I. so did I so I, did I I thought her long monologue was uh, a very uh, depressing take on no matter what you do. The the vines and grasses will outlive They'll you, and you, and the vines. visual their elements impersonal. of that scene showed basically the green grass and vines overtaking the works of man. Right, it's violent, tearing down the castle and filling in the all the gaps. And the gist of it was your virtue is is pointless and meaningless yeah. and temporary.
3: Yeah, in the right. same way that it overtakes him in that scene in the woods, you keep going back to yeah. when he's accosted, mm-hmm. and and yeah. it
4: leaves him dead, just a skeleton. Which I think he he puts that first and I don't know I just would like to believe that even if he the director himself leans that direction that it still ends with a question which is maybe yeah. why he ends it abruptly. But um, there's a, a point he ends up being accompanied by a little fox mm-hmm. along the way and in the last scene okay. the fox talks to him and it's absolutely creepy um, the, the fox has a very scary voice and he stands in, in the in the poem there's a servant who says do not go to the green chapel this is the last river that you cross to get there please don't go but in the in the movie it's the fox who's been following him the whole way and he stands in front of him and says don't don't do this thing don't continue on with your journey he says the man that you're about to see is as wild as i am mm-hmm. and that's what you can and and you will expect wildness from him. And uh on the one hand, that it he could mean the very thing that we're talking about, with the the greenness creeping back and being there when you're gone, and, and it's careless of it's like like the red badge of courage, right? Nature will be there when you're gone, it has nothing, it doesn't care about you. On the other hand, it reminds me of Aslan, right? Like he's not uh, he's not a tame safe, lion. But he's good. He's not safe. And we don't know. We don't know what kind of a man the Green Knight ends up being.
2: That is very interesting because the, the poem, in my view, if correctly read, uh, ends on a hopeful. It's very hopeful uh, in, in, in terms even. of the. Maybe even jovial, yeah. yeah. And that reading of the of the movie gives it a, sort of a hopeful cast at the end as well. Though we don't know how it turns out, we sort of have an inkling that the line
0: across the throat is jovial as well. That it a, could be. There's a yeah. jest in it. So why here's the, and this is I'm playing the devil's advocate here because I'm I am pretty persuaded at this point, Emily. But to play devil's advocate, why then interject Gowan giving back the girdle? Mm-hmm. Because that is a if what he wanted to say was, look how the goodness of growth and and mortality and all all things will. Your footsteps will be filled in. If that's what he wants to say, and that that's a hopeful thing, and that you don't get what you deserve, etc., why does he drag the issue of deserving it right back in at the end? I have an And idea. have that be a decision, uh, the thing that makes the Green Knight say, well done, good job, you did it. Right? Why does he do that? Because it doesn't happen in the poem. So it seems unnecessary to add that, unless you really wanted the topic of the conversation to be about doing it right or not doing it right.
3: Well, he does it, though, right after that long foreshadowing of, what consequences would be for him to choose the other path. Right. And so Mm -hmm. I wonder if the point is that virtue is its own reward, Mm -hmm. not that virtue buys you anything necessarily, just that Mm -hmm. it's a reward in and of itself.
4: Mm -hmm. Hmm. Yeah. I think that this might be the part where he's talking to a different
0: culture to our own era.
4: Um, And he's, I mean, he establishes that Gawain isn't a good guy in other ways, right. And why in ways that have offended people, as we talked yeah. about earlier, um, and so he doesn't in the poem. The fact that Gawain keeps the bell is what establishes his sinfulness, essentially. Yeah. But but the movie does that in other ways, and so that's
1: his sinfulness is not subtle in the movie, and it is in the in the poem.
4: Yeah, yeah. And I don't know. I, I mean, at that point, maybe the director just thought it wasn't necessary to to ram that point home again. But maybe what is necessary is, like Mom was saying, to to establish the fact that virtue is although imperfectly kept valuable in itself. Hmm.
2: I remember being surprised and relieved to find that that, that long history of, of uh, Gowan's terrible reign was a, was a dream. Mm-hmm. And that he, when he took the belt off and handed it to the great knight and said, now I'm ready. I don't know if it was my, you know, pietistic Christian morality went, that went, Oh good. Hooray. You know, Gawain, good job, but but I wonder if virtue is its own reward would be an, um, a better way to, to put that. Maybe that's well, the message there. It,
4: it just seems like the poem, Gawain, was written for a Christian world, and the failing of a Christian world is to put faith in one's own chivalry and virtue, yeah. yep. right? Yep,
0: yep. religion yep. about pietism instead oh, of Oh, I Jesus. love that.
4: But this movie was so clearly made for a secular world, and... I wonder if what it is trying to say is something particularly tuned to that. That uh, in in Gawain, the majority of the culture can identify with him because he is. I mean, he's he is a perfect modern teenage boy at the opening of the film, hmm. um, and the fact that he and has to navigate these questions of what is valuable in life. And and what should one do? Is it greatness? Is it honor that one should pursue, or is it goodness? Like his girlfriend says, that might be a particular question to our time that wasn't as important to the poem.
1: That's fascinating. I love that. I can't wait to watch this.
0: So then, to the question of the episode before we wrap up here, um, responsive art. Yes, good. Do we like? Is this a? Does this qualify as a category of <laughs> of? Faithful adaptation. Emily,
2: what would you, what do you mean by the term responsive then based on this conversation? I think
4: what Ian is trying to say is essentially what this director has done is in full understanding, as far as we can tell, in full understanding of what the original poem was actually about or at least in pretty good understanding. Maybe he doesn't entirely understand the Christian elements of it, but he has respect for and has studied this poem. Absolutely. And then takes it and does his own thing with it. That isn't what the poem did. I mean, on a very superficial level, he adds random scenes like these naked giants walking through a field. Oh, that's, I think I, that that's actually in the original, isn't it? It is not.
0: It's not. <laughs> no. Oh, no, I thought heavens. it was. We wouldn't it's one, probably teach it's it to our junior high. Tiny, <laughs> it's one tiny fragment of one line
1: in the original poem. <laughs> yeah, I, it does show up you in mean there. The naked
0: women just, are
2: twenty stories
1: tall. He just kind of mentioned giants, on it. but he didn't say they were naked and women.
2: Uh, yeah, no, all, all he that's does is say giants. For sure.
1: That seems yeah. interpretive. And
4: just for sake of
1: fun, I think
4: what it represents in the film is something like a a primitive or essential humanity because what I noticed this time watching it for the second time is Gawain stands on the cliff and the knight or the I guess everyone is the knight everybody's a knight <laughs> all characters are in the <laughs> night the giant <laughs> reaches out and um he says it would be so helpful to me if you would take me on my journey he like calls out to this giant for help
0: take and, you like four steps
4: yeah and so the giant reaches out and like assumably to help him right it looks like it, it's scary but nice looking and <laughs> reaches out his hand and he cowers and runs away he's too terrified of it and then the fox that's traveling with him howls and then the giant naked chorus takes up the howl and there's like a there's like identification and like the wildness and the nature between the, and the creature and these giants
1: that sounds um, trippy
4: dude it's pretty weird <laughs> It, it really is, is, it is pretty. Weird. It's pretty yeah, weird.
0: I think there's a lot of naturalism that verges on nihilism in this movie, but
4: I think so too. And I think it's definitely informed by our, our time. But um, anyway, the fact that he cowers from the hand—it seems like also another representation of his his struggle, right? To find his courage, or to to, to define himself that. He's too afraid of the of whatever it is, the greatness of the world out there. But anyway,
3: I don't know. So the the whole idea of responsive art is that the individual, while knowing the story very well, creates a work of art that's in conversation with the original intentions of the author as he understands them to be right, and changes things up not because he really intended to do a faithful retelling of the story, but because he wants to emphasize particular things and ask particular questions that maybe confront the original story and and counter it in some way? Or what do you mean?
0: Well, I don't know. That's a good question, whether he's countering it or not. I think what Emily's arguing is that he's not countering the original story at all. He's turning with that story behind him and saying to his own viewers, who are you and me, In our era, this is the question that needs asking. And Gowan Gowan causes me to ask ask this question. Mm.
2: In the 21st century as opposed Mm
0: -hmm. to the 9th century. I see. Exactly. That is really cool. And and so it is a partnership of sorts between this director and the Pearl Poet.
4: Well, yeah. If the poem is putting Christianity to the test, maybe the film is putting nihilism to the test Mm -hmm. by the same devices.
0: Mm -hmm. You might be right. You might be right that is so so much smarter than my first read of this. <laughs>
4: well, and i just it, want to be clear, Everyone's I'm not than I'm me. not entirely <laughs> convinced that the that his answer is no nihilism isn't the answer like I don't know. Well, I, yeah, it, I mean it's a pretty, it could go either way. It could go either way, but I think that's kind of the point. It's a question.
0: Well, I what I would my my own I'll stick my aura in here for a second. My own initial response to this was that it fails as a reading of the original poem because it doesn't tell the whole story. That doesn't mean it fails as its own work of art. I think it was extraordinarily successful as its own work of art and really beautiful. It was the best film of the year, in my opinion, the year it came out. But it, but if we're going to talk about it in comparison to the work that it's based on, we have to have a, a solid reading of the work that it's based on first. And it turns out it's really difficult to come up with. I mean, even, even careful readers who share the faith of the poet have a difficult time coming up with what I would consider to be a nuanced reading. Which of the is poem. like,
4: maybe also that's part of the point of the poem that you're going to struggle mm-hmm. with it and you're probably going to read it wrong. And like, that just makes me wonder if that's true of the film as well. Like maybe a nihilist comes to this film and goes, yeah, that's totally right. But that other answer is like lying in the background for those who
0: would see it. Hmm. You know, you calling me short. Well, I love <laughs> it. I th- I mean, I think it's, I think, I think you are brilliant. And I think the film is brilliant. And I think all of us that have seen it, Megan excluded, would oh, right. highly recommend that Megan see it.
3: Yes, I think so. Yeah. yeah definitely.
0: <laughs> Wouldn't you guys recommend it? I mean, what, yeah, yeah. What, especially after this conversation, well, yeah, it's very thought
3: provoking yeah. and deep in, um, you know, it's not one that that I just throw on because I've been working hard all day long and Iron I just want to check shirts. my brain yeah. at the door. But, <laughs> right. but you know, it's a really thought no provoking, Miranda. artistic movie, and it's I think it's worth it's worth having a conversation yeah. about.
4: Agreed. All right, well, I Agreed. will do my
1: homework. I have been duly chastened. <laughs>
4: It also looked really good on the screen in our house because the oh. color palette is my favorite color palette I and mean, oh. the palette that I decorate <laughs> in. So, oh, so I was great in your thinking. living room. <laughs> I was like, wow, this movie goes really well in my yeah. living room. <laughs> if,
0: if we were ever if we were ever gonna host some sort of upscale dinner party where it was useful to have something going in the background with no sound, I, That's the movie you'd put on Hey, naked these hors d'oeuvres are great, Emily. What about the naked women on the yeah, wall?
1: Yeah, what's going on? <laughs> Is <laughs> that what's a talking- they person? Not, <laughs> like,
2: just to be clear,
4: they're not, like, like realistic naked no, women. They're no, they're not right. sexual. They, they, look, like they look, yeah. like totally look like androids. They look like androids. They totally look like
1: androids. Very tall. They're flex.
4: Yeah. I just wonder if we could have a little conversation here at the end about our house films and how you guys feel about them, because a lot of people, I think, would dismiss, and like a lot of the secular response to this film that wasn't engaging with it on a Christian basis, basically were like, this is too weird for us.
0: This movie's really um, strange.
4: So what it is this kind of art house t- technique? Is it too pretentious or is there a place for it?
0: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that.
3: I think there's totally a place for it. Absolutely. I, I really think the art house film does actually appeal to an individual who's going to the movies with their brain turned on yes. on purpose. Yes. And that is very different than going to the movies to be entertained.
2: Absolutely.
3: I, I, agree. I think that's important. It, it basically, it draws the art form into a serious arena. It's art,
2: Megan, right? it sounded like you were going to push back.
1: I am. I do think it needs to be said out loud also that if we're doing the whole book to movie conversation, going to an art house film is a little bit like reading E.E. Cummings. You go because of the way that it makes you feel (laughs) that you've gone. You know what I
0: mean? (laughs) There
1: is an element of that. And I think that someone on the Center for Lit Staff needs to say that out loud. And if you're you're just saying it's all pretentious. Well, yes, there is an element of pretension. Harriet. That goes into being an academic as well, Harriet. to caring about books, you know? So, I don't know. You need to be self-aware
3: when you it's go to It's only pretentious if you're putting it on and you don't really no, enjoy it.
1: That's well, I true. think that's... There's think an element that,
3: of
4: pretension
3: to reading an <laughs> E.E. I don't who... know if I agree with
4: you about that. <laughs> that's true of people <laughs> who watch the movies, but I think that can also be true of
2: directors, too. Yes. I think that
4: directors can use the art house thing in
2: inappropriate In unnecessary ways,
1: absolutely.
4: Well, I I
2: totally agree with that. I mean, there's people that are
0: weird. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but some of them are movie directors. Thank you for that. I'll back. I'll back Emily on this one. It's not just weirdness. It's also there's a fine line when it comes to works of art. We've had this conversation in other contexts for years and years now on this show. There's a fine line between obscurity that that's artistic that draws the viewer into contemplation and makes them ask difficult questions and and causes the kind of joy that comes as a reader from doing something hard with your brain and obscurity for obscurity's sake yeah that gives you a lens through which to look at the author and see them as some sort of higher order being of of mysterious genius right i would right?
4: say that this year's nominee oscar nominee the power of the dog absolutely fits into that second category yeah. it it was there's was no substance but it was just trying to be pretentious the goal of it was
0: to say something pretentious pretentiously so, but I don't think that all art house movies do that. And no, what I'll say I is, don't either. As a, a, as I said a minute ago, a resident cinephile is that I think the art house movie um, takes really, really seriously the craft. It's not just a vehicle for telling a story. It's actually a set of brushes to paint with or mm-hmm. a set of chisels to sculpt with. Film has dimensions that other works of art don't. And so an art house director is usually in it for the craft. And the story is sometimes kind of a byproduct because the craft is the point. He's, well, he's, he's chosen a, a genre, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, well yeah, he's genre. handing you a a painting as much as he's handing right. you a novel,
4: which is really fun. With, I think the two come together really well in the Green Knight, though, because the content actually does lend itself really well to the style. Like, can you imagine? Yeah, can you imagine trying to adapt this movie in a popular format? It would either it would turn into a cartoon, basically. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm.
0: It That's so be, funny that you bring that up. Oh, go ahead, Dad. I was just going to make a reference to Angelina Jolie's Beowulf. <laughs> yeah, We don't have yes. to be I, that. Was
4: that <laughs> I was hoping that would come in at
1: least
0: once. <laughs> that is so great. It, I'm, so, it, I'm glad you brought that up because it's possible for people who are devotees of film as an art form to get it wrong because they don't know from story. And I was recently doing some research for a summer course that I'm going to offer and came across Roger Ebert's. Reviews of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he panned them. Huh? what? And he panned them because, what is the quote? He said, this is a loose paraphrase. He said, if Tolkien's story is about hobbits on a quest, bringing along some wizards and some men and some elves for the ride... Peter Jackson's trilogy is about wizards and men going on a quest and bringing along some hobbits. Oh, buddy. And <laughs> and he reads he reads the Lord of the Rings trilogy and he says this is about whimsy. This is about what? this is about a ch- a childlike view of the world and Peter Jackson just decided to make it a drama heavy action movie. <laughs> oh,
2: man. <laughs> he wrecked it.
0: So he didn't read it right in the first place, Ebert. He missed it. Yeah. And then he but what he all of the things that he says about filmmaking are uh, full of praise for Peter Jackson's vision. Right. He basically says, listen, the fact that this is a terrible reading of the Tolkien books doesn't change the fact that these are great movies. By the time he gets to The Return of the King, he says, richly deserved all 11 of its Oscars. This is a so, this is a cinematic genius.
2: So he also could have said, if he had been a better reader, it's a great adaptation. And it also,
1: it's one of the exactly. greatest adaptations of all time.
0: <laughs> I, I bring it up to say, even the great ones get it wrong. Roger Ebert, rest in peace. One of the, one of the best prose stylists and movie critics ever. But... We're dealing with two different art forms here and I think that's why this conversation is so fun right we're talking about literature and story and how to be a good storyteller and a story reader and we're talking about painting on the screen and how to be a good painter and a good understander and appreciator of painting
4: and you have to like you have to be able to move between those two things I think to read films well to, to yeah. read an art house film you have to give yourself to the art house film but you'll if you carry that same attitude into our next subject on the table, Kenneth Branagh, then you're going to get him all wrong. Oh, yeah.
0: yeah, that's a good point. He's not that's, exactly our next one. We're, that's, it's two down the road. Oh, no.
4: That's sad. Well, we can wait. I'm it's looking worth forward it to that one.
0: Well, you guys, you are all brilliant as usual. And you listeners, thank you so much for joining us. You are brilliant too. And we <laughs> hope that you have enjoyed these episodes as much as we have enjoyed recording them. Do please contact us on all your various social media outlets and tell your friends about the show. And we will see you next time for another episode of Bibliophiles. Happy reading. Happy reading, Happy everybody. Reading.
4: Thank you for listening to Bibliophiles. We hope this conversation gave you a lot to think about. By the way, if you're a teacher or homeschooling parent looking to incorporate engaging Socratic discussions in your literature classroom, we'd like to invite you to check out Center for Lit's flagship seminar, Teaching the Classics. You can find it on our website at centerforlit.com. Next week, we'll be changing things up a bit and talking about what makes a bad film adaptation. Until then, happy reading, everyone.